right, all right. So uh, kids, so elementary, so preschool through fifth graders, you guys are dismissed out the side door with teacher somebody. Anyway, just run out the side door. There'll be a teacher out there somewhere to help you. And then uh, youth group. So middle and high schoolers, you guys were going to be in today. And then Pastor Chris just had mercy on your souls. And he's going to take you out and teach you something. So bless your hearts. What could go wrong in the youth group? So we miss you guys. We'll be here uh, when you're done. So. Um, everybody else, uh, super excited today. Um, I just wanted to mention quickly that Friday night fellowship that Pastor Chris mentioned. Um, we did a handful of these last summer and they were super fun. It's nothing formal. It's just an opportunity for us all to get together, not on a Sunday morning, and just enjoy a meal together and, uh, and just have some fellowship. So um, uh, Gary Marshall, who most of you know, who actually isn't here this morning, she, was, she hates to miss, but she's not here but she's opening up her beautiful home in Palo Alto, so it's not far from here at all. And we're just going to get together on a Friday night, and um, so the church will provide kind of a burger bar, and then you all can just bring the stuff that goes with it. So bring a salad, bring some chips, bring some drinks, bring a dessert, bring whatever you want to bring, and we'll eat burgers and whatever you bring together. So it starts around 6, so you can just come directly from work, um, there's no big Bible study. There's no, you don't have to listen to me talk at all. In fact, you don't even have to talk to me if you don't want. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. God bless you guys. Somebody show those guys the door when we're... No, no, no. They know where the door is. They've proven that. So, um, but you can just come and it's just, a, a, just an opportunity to hang out. Get there when you want to get there and leave when you, uh, when you need to leave. But we hope that you'll come out. So that's a couple Fridays from now. I think it's the 23rd. Third, thank you, doctor. So, um, so with that, we're going to be this morning in uh, in the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, um, you you would need to have a Bible to follow through. Make sure I'm not making stuff up. So you can look at a Bible on your phone. You can raise your hand, and uh, one of the men will bring you a Bible. Um, you know, here we're making our way uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to look at just a small section of text today. But before we do that. Um, we want to pray and just ask the Lord to bless it, because without that, um, we have no hope of, uh, of understanding any of it. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless this time. So Father, we thank you um, for this morning, and as Pastor, Pastor Chris did, Lord, we thank you for all the things that you're doing here in our church fellowship, all the different um, activities and the different opportunities that we have um, just to, to share time with one another, Lord, to get together, to study your word, to encourage one another. Um, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this place that you've provided for us to meet in this time that you set aside each week for us to come together, Lord. And we thank you that we are able uh, just to openly study your word, Lord. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless it. Lord, we pray as we do each and every week that your spirit would be our teacher, Lord, and that he'd be the one to guide us into truth, Lord, and just to reveal your heart to us today. And so we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, again, this morning, we're just going to look, uh, we're in chapter 8, and we're just going to look this morning at verses 22 through 26. And it's just five verses, but I, I hope that we're going to see, when we're all done, that this is a very important five verses. Now, if you read ahead, knowing where we're going to be, if you read ahead, you will also know that this is a 
puzzling five verses. And in fact, that there are many who might contend that, you know, out of a list of different things that Jesus did during his earthly ministry that were at least a little bit puzzling, some people would say that this miracle might well be at the top, if not right near the top, of that list of puzzling things, right? Today's story is the very unique story of the unique healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. And it's unique, first of all, because only Mark records this miracle. It's one of, we said before, two miracles that Jesus did, which were only recorded by Mark. And you'll remember the first one we looked at back just a few weeks ago in chapter 7. It was that other sort of unique healing of the deaf and the mute man. So again, in just that sense, it's unique that it's only recorded by Mark. But this miracle is also unique, maybe even more unique, I think because of the especially kind of unique way and the very unorthodox method that Jesus used as he healed. Um, now, all that being said, I will say that as puzzling as this text may be, it to me is one of the most encouraging miracles that we see Jesus do. And I think especially as it relates to really this miracle that, that he is still performing in each one of our lives, even to this day. So I titled the message this morning, An Ongoing Miracle in Each of Our Lives. And I think there's a lot of great gospel truth just in this short little passage. And so I really just wanted to take the opportunity just to kind of savor it uh, as an encouragement for each of us. Now, you remember when we left off last week, in our text, Jesus had just had yet another run-in with our friends, the fault-finding Pharisees. And remember, he was back there, now on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, there in Dalmanutha, right near to Tiberias. And we remember that these guys were waiting for him there and demanding to see a sign. And Jesus flat out refused. He didn't even respond to their request. And he just jumped back into the boat and headed with the boys back out across to the other side of the sea. And on the way, we remember that he took some time with them to talk to the disciples about the dangers of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and of the Herodians. And we talked about the fact that these were the dangers to our faith of legalism and liberalism and of that mixing of faith with what we called bad politics. And unfortunately, what we saw is that the disciples didn't understand at all what Jesus was talking about at all. Right? They, they assumed he was talking about leaven because they had forgotten what? To bring bread for lunch. So obviously these guys are not at the point where they are ready for final exams, right? And yet it's their lack of spiritual perception that sort of sets up, it kind of serves really as the backdrop for what we're going to see happen here next. And you remember in the boat, Jesus had asked them, he said, do you not yet perceive nor understand? He said, is your heart still hardened? And we talked about the fact that their hearts were hard, but not in the same sense as the hard hearts of the Pharisees. The disciples' hearts weren't hard in the sense of obstinance or in a hard-hearted refusal to believe, but it was more in a sense of a thickness or a, a dullness of their hearts 
that was delaying their spiritual development. And so with that, again, kind of as our backdrop, we pick up now in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, where we read, so they're in this boat sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and it says just at the beginning, it says, then he came to Bethsaida. Now, we have been here before. We're back now near the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and this is back right in the area where that first miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 had happened with what would just be a couple months before this point. Now, if you remember about Bethsaida, there was sort of a western side and an eastern side to this one city. It was one on each side of what was the beginning of the Jordan River as it flowed into the Sea of Galilee from Mount Hermon, where it starts, right? It, at this point, the, the city of Bethsaida is a pretty large, kind of a metropolitan area. In fact, it's the area where Peter and James and John had all come from. It was sort of a, a village where fishermen lived. And we're going to see that this is the first stop as Jesus is now taking the boys up to the north for the rest of this chapter into the area of Mount Hermon itself, right? He's continuing to try to get kind of away from the crowds so he can prepare these guys for his coming death and his departure. But it's while we're here, just kind of stopping off here now in Bethsaida, that Mark says this. So they came to Bethsaida, verse 22, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So again, just as we've seen before, right? Jesus can't be anywhere for very long before his presence you know, news starts to get out, right? His, his presence, his, his power. And we see this group of faithful friends, again, brings this blind man to be touched and healed by Jesus. Now, Bible historians will tell us that blindness was an especially common curse, right? Even a, a scourge amongst the people in the East at that time, you take the, you know, the brutal glare of the sun in that region and you aggravate that by the fact that, you know, the importance of personal hygiene just wasn't so much a priority. And it was very common to see a person with, that would develop terrible inflammation of the eye and infections would develop and they would get encrusted by dirt and germs and then flies would sort of land on them and then of course transfer the infection off to someone else. So blindness was a, a real problem. We, we actually see that Jesus healed quite a few different blind people. The, the Gospels I think record eight specific blind people to whom Jesus restored their sight. And then we have two more instances where we're not told exactly how many blind people that Jesus healed. Now, in the Bible, you, you Bible students already know this, blindness is very often used as a picture to illustrate that condition of just being spiritually lost, right? Where you're in spiritual darkness, you're unable to see or to perceive the spiritual truth and the, the reality that's all around us. So there's this scourge of spiritual blindness, and it's something from which, you know, each and every one of us suffer before we come to know the Lord, 
because it's a part of the result of the fall. Now, what I think is both especially fascinating and, and super significant is that while we see a number of different people in the Bible who each perform different kinds of miracles of healings, right, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you've got the prophets healing people, you've got the apostles healing people, it is only ever Jesus who we see heal a blind person. And it's interesting because Jesus himself quoted both from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 on two different occasions, both of which Dr. Luke records for us, but basically to show that healing the blind was one of the specific signs that was prophesied of the coming Messiah. We remember, we've talked about it before, repeatedly. It was Luke chapter 4. It was just before Jesus was rejected that first time by his own people in Nazareth. And we remember that he was rejected in Nazareth because he had quoted from Isaiah and referred that scripture to himself. He had said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant there in the synagogue, sat down. It says the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because, of course, we know that God in the flesh had come to earth to restore our blinded spiritual vision because it's only the Lord Jesus who can turn our darkness into light. Peter tells us that it was Jesus who called us out of the darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. So there was a point for each one of us, if you know the Lord here this morning, there was a point at which he opened our eyes and gave us back that spiritual eyesight. Although that miracle can look very different for each one of us. And look at the way that Mark records that Jesus restored the sight to this man now that we're first reading about here. Again, look at verse 23. So they bring this blind man to him and it says there that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. So first of all, again, a beautiful picture here of the kind of the care and the concern that Jesus takes. The first thing he does, he takes this man by the hand, this blind man, and he takes him off to a private place where he can deal with him one-on-one. -on -one. And not in the middle of what no doubt was a crowd that had probably begun to assemble now by this point. But I think, when we think about it, this is even a more beautiful picture than that. Because you remember when he had recently healed the deaf and the mute man, Jesus also, we said, sort of took him aside. Right, he took him aside unto himself. We talked about the fact so that they could look eye to eye, stand eye to eye, you know, and see each other, took him away from the distraction of the crowd. But notice here that specifically, Mark says that Jesus took the blind man all the way, what does he say, out of town. Now, why would that matter so much when this man is blind? 
right? He's not going to know or care that there's a crowd around. Well, again, it matters more not because of who it was that Jesus was about to heal, but it matters a lot because of where it was that this healing is about to happen. Remember, we're here in this town of Bethsaida, right? Which was a place that Matthew tells us that Jesus had done many of his miracles. In fact, most of his miracles. And there was a less than an eager response from those people. And so it was before we get to this point in Jesus' ministry where Matthew says, back in Matthew 11, it says that Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, remember those Gentile cities way to the north, he said they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus had already pronounced a judgment upon this city of Bethsaida here, right? right, As well as Chorazin, which is just a couple miles up the hill. But he'd pronounced a judgment, right? Because of the way they had failed to respond to all of the miraculous works that he had done, he says that judgment would come in their future. So much so that neither of those cities exists to this day. Right, except for just the beginnings of some archaeological excavations, we're not even precisely sure exactly where the exact site of Bethsaida was. And the point is, Jesus had done all the miracles that he was going to do there in Bethsaida. He'd already pronounced his eventual doom on Bethsaida, so he needs to take this man who our text will tell us at the end, probably wasn't even a resident of Bethsaida. But Jesus takes him outside of the city so he can perform this miraculous healing because this city was already under the judgment of God and no more evidence was going to be given to them. Now, here is what I think is so beautiful, even here in this picture of this impending judgment. Right, Jesus has pronounced this doom on this place as a city, but that never means he doesn't have time and have mercy to minister to each individual person. So here, you know, he's ministering this mercy to this individual. And you remember when we were studying through the book of Joshua, and remember the children of Israel were brought into the land of Canaan by the Lord, and one of the reasons was to judge the wickedness of the Amorite people and to ultimately destroy them. But even though that was the purpose, it didn't mean that God can't and that he wouldn't save an Ammonite prostitute named Rahab who lived there in the wall of Jericho. Remember, she turned to him in faith and she acted by faith and she protected the spies and God honored the faith of Rahab and he makes this provision for her as an individual. And God is always that way. And I, I think that in a sense, this is a picture of each one of us in this world today. Because we are living in a world that is already under the judgment and under the sentence of God. 
All you have to do is read through the book of Revelation and we see that it is all laid out. We see all the judgments that are coming on a Christ-rejecting world and yet the Lord is just waiting and he continues now to be focused just on individuals that he is saving out of this world. Right? It's like Peter tells us that the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. He's being patient for your sake, Peter says. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. And I just thought that was an encouraging word for us today because it's so easy for us to look around and to be so frustrated, I think, by the sin and by the rebellion that's around us. We as Christians can look around and be frustrated at people because they're not acting like Christians, right? The problem is that we as Christians oftentimes don't act as Christians, right? So how can we be frustrated when the world acts like the world? But to remember that this is all about the individuals that Jesus will put into our path so that we can minister to them and we can share with them that very same healing that Jesus wants to provide for them. And, and he can do it in whatever way he wants to provide it, even as we're going to see now, if he does it in a very unconventional way. Look at verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. So, again, we see like we saw before, Jesus does what we think is kind of this strange thing with his spit, right? We saw it back when he healed the deaf and the mute man there on the other side of the sea in the Decapolis. And we said that it wasn't really clear there, according to the language, whether Jesus spit right on the man's tongue or whether he spit on his own finger and touched the man's tongue or maybe he spit on the ground and then he touched the man's tongue with his finger. Well, here it's pretty clear from the text in whatever language you look at it, that Jesus spat on his eyes. Some of the translations even say he spat in his eyes. Now, I'm going to say once again, why Jesus did this has been widely discussed for over 2,000 years, and there are as many different opinions as you can imagine, and I will tell you that I am not going to solve the mystery for you this morning. Okay? You can ask Jesus about it when you get to see him, okay? I'll mention again, in case you missed it last time, that in the ancient world, they did believe that there was some sort of a medicinal quality to our spit. And historians would explain that this was a commonly held belief of the people at the time. Again, when you cut your finger, what do you do? You stick it in your mouth, right, to stop the bleeding. So what Jesus was doing here with the spit probably wasn't perceived to be nearly as gross as maybe we would see it. It may have even been readily accepted to be kind of medically beneficial. But I also will say again that I don't want us to get too bogged down in the details about the spit because then we're going to entirely miss what's really going on here because the important part of this passage is the end of verse 23 and then on into verse 24. So he spits on his eyes, puts his hands on him, then it says, and he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Okay, men like trees walking. Now, literally what he says is that he saw the men. So probably he sees the 12, 
right? He sees the disciples moving around, but they're blurry, right? He looks up and he sees light. He can recognize these upright figures. He knows that they're men, but he says that they look like trees. Now, this tells us something interesting. It tells us he probably could see at one point in his life, right? Maybe he wasn't blind from birth. Maybe he'd lost his sight somewhere along the line. But it also tells us that he's not seeing clearly like he should. So watch what Jesus does next. Verse 25 says, Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then it says that he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor even tell anyone in the town. Okay. Again, Bethsaida already under judgment. The man probably didn't live there. Jesus says, you go back home and don't even bother with Bethsaida. Now, this is more like it, right? And I, I think if there's something here, I guess that that famous saying, right, if at first you don't succeed, you just try, try again. Right? Jesus just needed to take another run at this one because the blindness of this man was just too difficult for Jesus to heal the first time around. Now, if you are visiting with us today and you can't tell that I am absolutely joking, let me assure you, I am absolutely joking. Right? The Lord Jesus created the cosmos, right? He spoke the world into existence with a word. So I can assure you that this was not some sort of like Jesus had a power surge, right? Or there was like a, a blip in the matrix, right? And oh gosh, I hate when that happens. You know, I get him healed halfway and oh, now Mark's gonna write about this and it's gonna be so embarrassing, right? This is not that at all. So Jesus could have healed him effortlessly. He could have healed him completely the first time around and yet he didn't. Now, once again, simply Jesus here demonstrating just, again, this diversity of methods in his ministry and his miracles, right? So that we can't, like we said before, we can't put him in a box to say, you know, Jesus always does it like this or God always heals people like that. So it's just another reminder that he's not going to be restricted by what we think he ought to do and how we think he ought to do it. God does things in a variety of different ways. But... In addition to that, I believe that the entire point of Jesus' approach here is to show us that there are times when he heals, but he does it in a gradual and a progressive kind of a way. So this is a, a gradual and a progressive healing. And in fact, it is the only gradual and progressive healing that we see anywhere in the New Testament described in the ministry of Jesus. But it reminds us that there are times when Jesus will choose to work this way. And, and, and certainly maybe we have seen this in a physical sense, right? Where we're confronted maybe with a medical crisis and the diagnosis is dire and the outlook is bleak and the prognosis is bad. And what do we do? We pray for a miracle. Because we believe that God absolutely is still healing people in these miraculous ways. But we pray and the person doesn't suddenly rise up and walk. And so what do we do? We assume that God said no. When in reality, the healing does come. 
but it comes eventually. And very oftentimes it comes slowly. Sometimes it comes in stages. Now the healing still defies medical opinion, right? Oftentimes it defies conventional wisdom, all the contributing factors, right? And the doctors sometimes can just say, well, we're not actually sure why you got better. All we know is that you got better against all odds, right? Because understand, all healing ultimately comes only from God. Now, we have some of them in our fellowship, so I will say God uses wonderfully skilled doctors. He uses fantastic medical advances, and he will often heal through those things. But the healing came from him, and it may have indeed come gradually. As God is working supernatural through just those natural things, to bring it about. And this healing is just a reminder that our healing might be a process. It's a process that's been put in motion at this point, right? God's the one that begins the process, and God is the one who's going to carry that process all the way through to its end. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been asking God for a healing, and, and maybe you've even sensed that God has spoken to you and confirmed that he's going to do that. Maybe you've even sensed that that process has started and yet you're not sure because nothing seems to be changing. You say, well, well I, I might be healed, but I don't know because it, it hasn't quite happened yet and the tests still show. Well, that very well may be, but it could be a situation just like this that you're experiencing where the process has started and you just need to rest and wait in the Lord for the result. So that, that, there's a wonderful lesson here in this passage that I think is communicated to us. But there's a much deeper lesson in this passage. And it's a, a deeper lesson that Bible students have long since recognized because the early church fathers, right, they saw, just as we can see this morning, that this account is both a miracle, but it's also a parable, right? There's actually a parable in this miracle. So it's the miracle of the literal healing of a physically blind man, but it's also a parable on a spiritual level of what happens in our lives when we come to faith in Jesus as he restores our spiritual eyesight. And the, and the deeper lesson here, the bigger picture is that God, that, that his work in each one of us is progressive, right? We are each a work in progress. And this is really where I want to spend most of our time together this morning, right? You thought we were almost done, right? That's adorable. You guys are just adorable, right? So... We each come to Jesus and we are saved, the Bible says, in an instant, right? We're made completely new at the moment of our conversion, right? Old things have passed away. All things, the Bible says, have become new. As that Holy Spirit comes and he comes to live inside of us. And that's what the scriptures call regeneration, right? Where we are regenerated. But then we each enter into this extended process of what the Bible calls our sanctification. And sanctification is just a fancy Bible word for this season, which really lasts the rest of our lives, where we are being slowly made more and more like Jesus. 
Right? There was a, a wonderful man, Alan Redpath, he was a British evangelist and a, a pastor and an author, and he said this, he said that the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And this for me is one of those quotes and it's one of those lessons that I really hold on to in my own life, right? When we're saved, right, all of a sudden we begin to see things clearly and yet there's some things at first that still look like trees walking around, right? And what the scriptures tell us is that we need to go from there and we need to grow from there, right? We need to grow, Peter says, in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. That we, Paul says we have to set our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. Right? It was to the Corinthians, Paul's talking about this process and our growth and our maturing in the Lord. And he says that now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know also just as we are known. And then to the Ephesians, he writes this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and of his inheritance in the saints. So in all of this, there's a process. This is a lifelong and a sometimes painstaking kind of process for you and for me in the way we grow. And we need to know that. We need to know it for the benefit of the people around us, right? But we also need to know it for our own benefit as well, because there are times we can become impatient, especially when we look at others, right? But we can also become impatient and we can become super discouraged in our own process when we look and we think that we're not making very much progress and we just get so discouraged over that and so it helps us just to know that this is just the way that it is. And I can't tell you how many books I've read, how many things, books I've seen over the years that just kind of left me with the impression that somehow I was just missing whatever that one thing was that I needed to get so that I could just get through this whole silly sanctification process and get right to that spiritual perfection part. And you just look at the titles of some of the books. None of these are on our reading list, by the way. But you look at some of the titles of the books that are out there, right? It's like The Hidden Key to Spiritual Breakthrough or One Easy Step to Spiritual Maturity, right? Or, or Understanding the Lord in One Easy Lesson. But the fact is, it's just not true. And it's like chasing after this thing that is just unattainable. And it's unhealthy because it either puts you into this, it turns you into either a judgmental, kind of a hypercritical person because you start to think that you're growing so much and you're so advanced beyond everybody else and you can't figure out why it's taking them so long and you start to wonder if maybe they're even saved or, more often, it puts you in this terrible state of constant discouragement as you just look at your own progress and then we start to measure it against what we think is everybody else's progress. 
and we convince ourselves that they're getting it and that we're the ones that are missing it because they look so good on a Sunday morning, right? And we're just a hot mess and we know it, but we end up so discouraged about all of it until we accept and we realize that this is just a process. And I do realize that I am beating this poor horse to death here. But the point is that knowing this and accepting it and embracing it, this becomes really like a deeper life theology for us. We know we're going to get to that place of spiritual perfection, but it's not going to come until we die and get to heaven. That's when you are going to get there. You are going to get there when this body of sin is shed and you get your glorified heavenly body. When you move from that place of regeneration through this process of sanctification into that final state of what the Bible calls glorification, where we're in our glorified bodies, glorified with the Lord in heaven. That's when you're going to get there. But until that point, while you are here, you are still a work in progress. There's this process that he's bringing you through. So that's a reality. So we have to be patient with others while they're in their process. Now, you may, there may be some people that you look at in your life, and they just look like big, stupid trees that are stumbling around all around you. But guess what? You probably look like a tree to them, right? So we need to give God the space both to work in our life and the lives of the people around us because it takes time in the Lord and it takes time with the Lord for us to grow and mature in our faith and our understanding. Take the example of the disciples, right? Look at where we are here in Mark's account, and we see a super interesting picture that's about to develop for us, just in the way that the Holy Spirit arranged this gospel. Here we have the disciples here, and they're just, we said, not getting it, right? After all that they've been through, they are still just not understanding anything. And we come to this account of this gradual, progressive healing of this blind man here in chapter 8. But then later, in chapter 10, we're going to come to the healing of another blind man. It's the immediate healing of blind Bartimaeus outside of Jericho on the final road up to Jerusalem just before the crucifixion. So we have these two different pictures of the healing of two different blind men, one here in the middle of chapter 8, one at the end of chapter 10, and in between those two pictures of blindness in Mark's gospel, we're about to come into what are called the discipleship chapters. These are the chapters where Jesus gets alone with his disciples and he starts to pour into them privately and plainly, really talking to them about who he is and why he came and what is to come. He's concerned about getting these certain truths communicated to them and revealing himself more fully to them, including, we're going to see the account of the transfiguration, which is where he actually reveals some of his glory to them. And wonderfully, all of this happens for us between these two pictures of blindness 
as the eyes of the disciples, their spiritual eyes are slowly being opened and their spiritual sight is starting to be restored. So just in the way that these events are arranged in Mark's gospel, we see a beautiful picture of this process, but that's probably just a coincidence or the Bible rocks, right? And it's not a coincidence at all. And my point is, again, it's my only point, this is a process. It was a process for them it's a process for us as our spiritual slight is slowly restored and gradually sharpened until we start to really see things clearly, right? Jesus is gradually restoring our spiritual vision. Here's another cool thing. Even just in this first miracle, right, this progressive miracle as the sight is restored, there's a, a wonderful glimpse in the language of what's ultimately going to happen. Look again there at verse 25. After he sees the men walking like trees, it says Jesus touches him for that second time. And then it says the result is that he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Now that you can circle the word clearly, you can circle it in your friend's Bible next to you because it is a wonderful word. And it's maybe my favorite word in this whole description because that one word in English is actually two different words in Greek. And the first word means afar off or in the distance. And the second word means something with radiance or with brilliance. And so you put it all together and what it means is it's to see something in the distance, something glistening afar off that's gleaming or beaming with light. It means to see something radiantly that's so far off. And it's used here by Mark and the Holy Spirit to show us that not only does the man see the things that were close to him clearly, but now he starts to see things that are off in the distance in a crystal clear kind of a way. And I believe this speaks to us again in this picture that we're given about this path that we're all on as pilgrims, right? We're pilgrims just traveling through and part of our job on our pilgrim journey is we're learning, the scriptures say, to fix our focus and to see those things that are afar off that we have. Peter calls them that inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, that's reserved in heaven for us. It's all of those precious promises that God has given us that Paul tells us that the heroes of faith in the hall of faith, he says they were all sojourning toward these things. Right In Hebrews 11, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them what? afar off, they were assured of them. And they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and they were pilgrims here on the earth. So this is us, right? This is us on our journey as we develop and we learn to maintain that external and that heavenly perspective, right? Just sharpening up our vision for those things that are laid up for us in heaven and giving ourselves both the time and the grace as we're getting there. You know, as we just see all these men walking around like trees and they're slowly starting to become clearer and clearer. And I think this is so heavy on my heart because I can't tell you how many times I have counseled with people and my heart just breaks for them because they live under this pressure, this constant cloud of guilt 
like they are somehow failing God. And what they've basically done, and they don't even know they've done it, is they have put this incredible burden on themselves that God himself just has not put on them. Or they've put this burden on other Christians around them. Right? We have to be patient with ourselves because sometimes we place these expectations on ourselves, then we fall right into the trap of self-condemnation of ourselves because we don't live up to those unrealistic expectations. Now listen, I am not talking this morning about somebody who's living in some kind of an open, hostile rebellion against God or somebody who's living in some kind of blatant sin where they don't care what the Bible says or they don't even think the Bible is teaching what the Bible is teaching. I am not talking this morning to that person. So if you are that person, I'm not talking to you. The person I'm talking to are the people that I think are here. I'm talking to the person who says, look, I want to be that person God wants me to be, but I always just feel like I'm not. I always just feel like I don't measure up. I feel like I'm never going to be that person. That's the person I am talking to today. And what we need to do is we need to get our mental picture of God sorted out better. Because if we think of God as this being who's just pretty much always displeased and dissatisfied and frustrated with where we are, then we are thinking about him in the wrong way. Because that's not the way God is at all. God is gracious towards us. He's long-suffering with us. And people will sometimes say to me, well, Bill, you're just preaching too much grace. And I say, well, hallelujah, I hope so, guilty as charged. I want to preach all the grace that I can preach because the Bible says that's what we're supposed to do. The Bible itself, the gospel itself is all about the grace of God. Romans 2, 4, it says that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And I'll never forget, I heard a pastor tell a story at a conference once about the way that some of the people in his church were responding to his teaching. And he said that some of the people came up to him after church one Sunday, and these were people that had been in his church apparently for a long time, and they said, you know, pastor, we just have to tell you that, you know, every week when we leave the service, we just don't even know if we're really saved. You know, we don't, we don't even know if, we just feel so condemned and we don't even really know if we're God's people. And you know, we don't even really know if God loves us and all of that. And here's the really sad part of the story. The pastor thought that was great. He thought, man, I am really doing my job because I'm just preaching and I'm telling those sinners what sinners really need to hear. And of course, I'm thinking, how sad is that? Because you come here as a Christian, you come here and primarily you need to be built up in your faith, not beat down in your faith. Right? We come because we need to be encouraged and we need to be inspired and we need to leave thinking, yes, you know, God does love me and yes, I'm moving forward with the Lord and that's what I think we want and I think we need and that's what I think that the Lord wants to give each one of us. And yes, there is always going to be somebody here in the crowd on a Sunday morning, maybe even here today, and you need to get slapped around a little bit. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is awfully good at doing that. 
And he can do that even in a message that's really encouraging and super gracious for everybody else. Because the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. What the New Testament says we need is that we need the heart to be established, it says, by grace. Again, that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Right? That's how we grow. We grow by understanding God's love and grasping his grace. And we want to be conformed into the image of his son, not because we're afraid God's going to squash us if we don't, but we want to be more like Jesus because we understand that he loves us so much. And we understand just how wonderful and how beautiful and how glorious he is. And we say, Lord, I want to be just like you. So again, remember, our primary mental picture of God needs to be that he is an all-wise and all-loving and all-gracious Father in heaven whose heart is a heart of compassion towards us. As we've said recently, because he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust, right? That his compassions don't fail and that his mercies are new every morning. And I am taking all of this time today because I'm talking to people who I know are here this morning because you are living in guilt, because you feel like you're not living up to some sort of an expectation. But again, it is not the expectation God has put on you. It's an expectation that either you've put on yourself or somebody else has put it onto. And you've got to get your eyes off of that and get your eyes back on the God who's merciful and who's compassionate and who's working through this process in your life to bring you forward into that place of maturity. And now is the time when you can all really say amen. Amen? Now, having said all of that, let me say this. You had to know that was coming, right? God does want us to make progress. Right? We are a work in progress, so we need to be progressing, right? We are to be moving forward, and yes, moving forward in holy living, right? We are to be developing into more godly, spiritual people. That is absolutely God's will for us. So I don't want anyone walking away today going, you know, I'm a work in progress, and I'm just like on my own schedule, and I can go as slow as I want to go, right? However fast is good for me. No, God's the one who's going to set the pace, and our job is to keep pace with the pace he sets. And if we are lagging behind, you better be sure he's going to start to poke at you. Right? Not unlike we just saw him in the text, test last time, text last time, try to say that, the way he kind of poked at the progress of the disciples. Remember, he says, do you not yet perceive? Right? Or is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He says, do you not remember? He says, all that you've just seen, you should be moving along more than you are. Now, I will tell you this too. Later on in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, through the writer to the Hebrews, he gives a much sterner rebuke than that. Listen to Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because I think it really captures the essence. Paul is in the mid oh, the author to the Hebrews is in the middle of this fabulous dissertation, and he says, Look, there's much more we'd like to say about this. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. 
right? You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others, and instead you need someone to teach you, again, the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And you're saying, wait a minute, right? What happened to all that compassion and all that grace? Right? That's a pretty hard word. But the point is, right, this is a process and we have got to be moving forward through it and not lagging behind in it. Right? God is faithfully, he's patiently perfecting this wonderful work he's doing in us. So yes, we need to be patient with others and we need to be patient with ourselves. But let's not forget that God is taking us into a place of deeper maturity. And if we're lagging behind, there are times when he may need to speak to us and help us to get with the program. To speed things up a little bit. Again, it's to the Hebrews that we're promised that God loves us enough to discipline us, to correct us when we need it, right? In Hebrews 12, it says that the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So he will catch us up to where he wants us to be. Remember, he's living inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this is where Paul says that it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, right? He'll first give us the will, the desire to want to do the things that he wants us to do. Then he'll give us the power to do the things we need to do to get to that place, right? He enlightens us and he gives us understanding and he convicts us when we need convicting, right? He shows us when we're drifting or when we've erred or when we've sinned or whatever it is that we've done, but he convicts us so that we would turn back to him and be forgiven. He gives us this very clear instruction from his word, and then he works in us, and we just need to stay in step with what he's doing and let it flow out of us, right? It's just like that other wonderful verse there in Philippians. It's actually one verse before the verse I just read, but it's in Philippians 2.12 where Paul says that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And let me clear this up. That does not mean that we need to work for our salvation. It means that we need to work to the outside the things that God has already done and is doing on the inside. And the picture here is a great one in the original language because the wording that the Apostle Paul uses for work out, it was a, a word that the people of his time would have been very familiar with. He was using a word that was often used in the context of the mining of precious metals or precious stones. That you would really get down in there and you would get everything. You'd get all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the diamonds, whatever it was that you were going for. You would mine thoroughly and you would work it all up out of that mine. Right? So we need to dig deep and get all that God is doing and then bring it up to the surface. Right? To work out the things that God has already worked in. That's what we do. That's sanctification. That's this process of being set apart from the world and unto the Lord. It's the process of, of being made more and more like Jesus. And it takes time and it's a cooperative process.
process. So very quickly, how do we do it? Well, we start by believing. Right? So much of it is just simply by faith. We believe God at his word. We take his word seriously. We seek him through prayer in our time in the word. We seek him through the fellowship that we have with his people. We trust him. Right? We trust him with our lives and with his plan for our lives. We obey him. Whether we feel like it or we don't, we do it. Right? We follow those things, right? So work out your own salvation, right? Believe and seek and trust and obey and follow. And why? Because God is already at work in you. He's taken up residence in you. He's empowering you and enlightening you and instructing you and he's leading you and he's discipling you. And maybe for some of you, he's disciplining you. He is convicting you when it's needed. Right? We're a work in progress. Let's be patient with one another. Let's be patient with ourselves. But let's make sure that we are not lagging behind. Right? As Jesus is restoring our spiritual vision. Well, I've got 25 more minutes. No, just kidding. I have one final thought as we're finishing up here today. With such an important spiritual principle, right? And with such a wonderful kind of a biblical picture, we may wonder why is it only included here in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you super smart Bible students were already wondering that, right? But I think the, the answer is pretty simple, and I think the answer is Peter. I think it's the Apostle Peter. And we know that Peter was the source of most all of the eyewitness accounts that are included here in the book of Mark. And I believe that this event must have made a, such a powerful impact in Peter's mind and in his heart for years and years to come because I believe that as the men walking around like trees became more and more clear for Peter as he matured, I think that perhaps Peter, like no one else, that he recognized this principle, he recognized this parable that's pictured here in the miracle and Peter of all people understood the importance of this process this slow process of growing in grace because all the gospels what do they show us they show us young Peter right they show us this Peter who was impetuous and anxious and very often acted before he spoke and often before he even thought right the, the gospel shows us this ready, fire, aim, kind of trees walking around kind of Peter. But it's the epistles of Peter. They show us a wise man who's full of grace. A man who had grown in that grace and who had grown in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And the epistles of Peter now paint this picture for us of a man who now, who now saw things and looked at God's people and his church much more clearly, right? He saw them crystal clearly. He saw them the way they were brilliantly radiating with the glory of heaven. And I think there are probably more than a few of us Peters who are here this morning. We need some extra time, right, to grow and to mature in the things of the Lord. And I just pray that you are encouraged this morning just to keep pressing ahead with Jesus and to keep your eyes firmly fixed on him as he brings you through this, this process of maturing you. Amen? Amen. Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and we thank you for 
your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the great encouragement that it is to us each and every time that we open it, Lord. We thank you for the way that you reveal your heart to us through it. And Lord, I do pray for anyone this morning that struggles under the weight of the guilt of a condemnation, Lord, um, for failing to meet an expectation that you never placed upon them, Lord. I pray that you would free them this morning, Lord, even right now. Pray that you would free them from that burden free them from that guilt. Father, I pray that we would all just get our, our mental picture of you sorted out in our minds, Lord, and in our hearts, and that would see you for the gracious and the compassionate and the loving Heavenly Father who you are, Lord, who wants to bring us along in this process, Lord, who isn't sitting up on your throne angry with us every time we make a mistake, Lord, but your heart breaks for us as you watch us struggle, Lord, I pray that we would turn to you and that we would receive power, Lord, just to will and to do those things that you want for us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.